Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary. from today's sponsor. Hey everybody, Mr. Dave here. I want to tell you all about... Oh, Mr. Dave! Mr. Dave! Hey Arnold, what can I do for you? I was just about to tell everybody all about the show. That's why I'm here. I thought of a wonderful way to do the commercial. Oh yeah? What's that? In song. It's educational. It's sensational. It's our puppet invitational. To join us each week for some fun. Sit back and relax. Grab some popcorn or some snacks. And get ready for the show. Sing along and get to know the sensation across the nation. It's a music-filled vacation. All your senses will be whirring and your brain cells will be stirring. It's the show you want to say. It's fun time with Mr. Day. That was a great idea, Arnold. You can find Fun Time with Mr. Dave on Facebook and Instagram at Dave the Entertainer and on YouTube by searching Mr. Dave with an exclamation mark. See you next time. Welcome back to our episode on, or episodes, on the fighter subclasses. Last time we met, we got through the first five. We got all the way through the Arcane Archer. But as that episode uh, highlighted, the three of us are uh, some opinionated folk. Round two. Ding, ding. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> we, have a, we have a lot to say about this class. And, and uh, I think that the way that Lewanika ended last episode was perfect when he was saying that the reason why we have so much to say about it is because of how much we love this class and how much we really want this class to work and how we really think that there are there are some opportunities here to go ahead and make them better and to really make them the fabulous fighter characters that we all remembered uh, from when from when we were kids. I very rarely want to play a fighter because a lot of times I want to play something with a little bit more nuance and a little bit more more kitsch to it. But when I do, the fact that there are so, there's so much diversity within these now, um, I can tell you that I. I would love to go ahead and play play the majority of them. So that so that's great. So we're, we're going to start tonight. Uh, we're going to continue with the subclasses that are featured in Xanathar's. We're going to start tonight with the Cavalier class. Um, and again, I think that this was one that the three of us ranked pretty similarly and at the lower end of the spectrum. So uh, Glenn and I both ranked them uh, sub four out of 10. Uh, Liwanika, you put it a little bit over four. So that's kind of the area that we're talking about here. The thing that this subclass didn't do for me, you know, it's funny, Glenn, when you were talking about using the Cavalier in combination with the Banneret and everything like that, it made me doubt myself for just a minute about whether or not I had given this class a fair shake or not. The more that I think about it, though, I, I have settled in that my conclusion my conclusions are, are, are fine um, because I really feel like this is a class that, from a flavor point of view, wants to be something but the powers that they gave it don't match what they want the class to be. The Cavalier is a mounted combat hero. Or should be. Doesn't get any mounted combat power. It's exactly it my notes, It gets one too. at third level, it gets one at 15th level, and ev- nothing else. And so it's like, it's one of those things, it's like, okay, I hear what you're trying to do, but that's not what you wrote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? In my notes, what I have is that for the class where in the very first line of its description, it says, and I quote, excels at mounted combat, only born to the saddle and ferocious charger are flavored for mounted combat at all. You know, and, and not just that, but it's, and again, I know we don't want to ham- hammer on the mechanics too heavily, but it's 18th level power sucks out loud. 
<laughs> it allows you to go ahead and take an extra attack of opportunity as a reaction, fine, but only on a round where you don't take where you don't take a normal reaction. So you're not actually getting any. The power doesn't actually do anything. You can use an you can take an attack of opportunity as a reaction anytime. That's that is rules. That that's that is combat rule in Dungeons and Dragons. You can take an attack of opportunity as a reaction. And so this saying that you can take an additional attack of opportunity unless you've already used your reaction, I guess the only case would be is that if you use your reaction for something else, then you don't lose your attack of opportunity. The way I read it was you get two attacks of opportunity, but if you've already used a reaction so you couldn't take an attack of opportunity anyway, nah, nah. Yeah. Right. That's uh, th What they're trying to say is that you get an additional one, but you're right. If you've already used your reaction as an attack of opportunity, you don't get the second one. Right. Mechanically weak. So I looked at this and I hear your, your statement that it is lacking in flavor. And I took what Glenn said in the last episode and uh, the last section when we were talking about the banneret. And I think that's absolutely correct. And then I was thinking about what I said about the banneret, that if you combine these two, the flavor of the banneret and the powers of this, you get a much better subclass. You get a much better fighter. Yeah. They tried to make two knights in shining armor and they should have just made one. I mean, I ranked the flavor second from the bottom. Arguably, could be the bottom. Like, it was a toss-up. Whereas, I ranked its powers kind of middle of the road. And the reason is, that 18th level one, weak sauce. But I have previously stated that I don't care that much about the highest level abilities because of the infrequency of actually having characters play to that level. Sure, that that's fair. Uh, it wasn't the heaviest thing that I thought of. You know, I thought that there were things that were good that I like Unwavering Mark. Yep. We spoke in a, in a previous episode about why does everything have to be hacks? Why couldn't you call it something else since it does something slightly different or has a different mechanic? This is a way to make that difference. You know, I, I think, you know, Hunter's Mark, Unwavering Mark, uh, they are different enough phrases that you can tell they're different things. And I like that ability. Some of the maneuvers work, I think, fairly well. I just think that it doesn't quite do it. Later, when we're talking about how to fix your fighter, we may propose some form of a fighter subclass that combines them a little bit into something like an ordered knight or a knight of the order or an, yep. an yep. order. And yep. you could have different options underneath it. Yep. We could build in some more mounted abilities that scale fairly well. And so if you're building a knight of the order who's more mounted, you can choose those abilities or what have you. And I think that there's there's a lot of room to get that to happen. But talking about the class as written, this is pretty weak sauce in, in comparison to the other fighter subclasses. Isn't isn't it isn't that nice? See, sometimes folks, we can agree on things. It really it does happen from time to time. It's not going to happen here. <laughs> I'm going to this might be the subclass ranking that gets me thrown off this podcast. I'm just going to toss that out there. Uh -oh. uh, the next one that we're going to talk about is from Xanathar's. It is the last of the Xanathar's subclasses, and it's the Samurai. The Samurai. Oh, the Samurai. Look, OK, I'm just going to come out and be straight. The samurai makes my heart sad. The samurai suffers from a problem that is not the samurai's fault, I think. It's that Dungeons & Dragons as a game does not do martial arts combat well. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the samurai has a limited toolbox with which to do the things that a samurai would need to do to be effective. For, I think, the first time in any of these subclass rankings, and we've probably done, what, 50, 50 subclasses or something at this point, uh, I think this is the first one that I have ranked a one across the board in all four categories. I think that it is mechanically awful. I think that its, that, uh, it's flavor is not realized because of the nature of the game of Dungeons & Dragons. I do not want to play it. And I had no desire to give it any sort of wild card points to raise it. It is a one. It is a pure one. There is no redeeming this subclass. I would agree. Subclass as written is crap. I'm not going to throw you off the podcast for this ranking. I ranked its flavor at a one. I ranked its mechanics at a three. That said, very similar to some of the other ones we've spoken about, I still want to play this character class. It speaks to what a samurai is and how much I like it. But it suffers from a problem that is not this subclass's fault, like Josh said. For me, what it really suffers from is the challenge of doing a send-up of a cultural icon without appropriation or stereotyping. I think that's where why it's so weak. 
I think there was an honest to goodness fear of being tokenistic or being a stereotype and offending so much so that they ended up cutting anything that dealt with the culture out of it, which is why it has no flavor, because there's a fear about that. And, and I truly feel that was an editorial decision. I can't say I disagree with it because I would also struggle. Like when we talk about how to fix things, I don't know how to fix this without questioning whether or not I'm either stereotyping or appropriating. Let's be honest. The samurai as done in Dungeons and Dragons for the history of this game was based on Kurosawa type films in and of itself a caricature of a very powerful social construct within a culture. Because of where this idea, this germ of an idea comes from, is problematic in that way, it makes it impossible to do it differently. So I think it's less about they can't do martial arts and more about how the heck do we get ancient or semi-ancient oriental culture into this game without being wrongheaded about it. I don't know if I have that answer. I don't even know if I'm qualified to have that answer. I've listened to podcasts from various folks who can speak much more eloquently about the Asian experience and how to show Asian characters within the game. I don't even know if they have that right answer. Is the answer that only an Asian can play an Asian character? I don't think that's the answer. But I wonder about how that gets done without being wrong. So I think that's the problem with the class. You're, you're not wrong at all. And I, I agree. The the Samurai is awesome. I mean, I ranked it a 10 for flavor. I mean, I couldn't help but rank it a 10 for flavor because it's that flavor is granted by countless legends, novels, films. Wizards of the Coast doesn't get credit for any of that, but that's the problem. They can't make the Samurai without all of that flavor that they that they can't have. Yeah. You know, the samurai is a real was a real figure that was also fictionalized and, and, you know, and set up as well. But it comes from an actual culture. You could create a samurai like class from a race in D&D if you put the culture behind it. But you're not wrong. All comparisons and lines would be drawn. So how could you possibly even if you were being as right headed as possible, how could you possibly do that without offending someone? in terms of the way that you interpreted it. So I love the samurai, but I honestly think it's a class, a subclass that D&D needs to just let go. I don't think they'll ever be able to properly incorporate it. I think they need to cut the strings. I think when they did the Carter setting in second edition, for as good as they could at the time, because they were showing multiple fighters, multiple wizards, multiple things, because it was an entire setting set in an oriental style culture, they had the Horde lands. They had Mongol-type characters. They had every facet. They had Chinese-styled characters. They had Japanese-styled characters. They had South China Sea-styled characters, not as well with that end of things as possible. They had all these different cultural areas that they were drawing from, and they allowed each of them to have a class or something like that, that it worked. I don't think you can do the samurai unless you're doing a setting. So then the samurai becomes one among many. So it can be its thing, but you're not saying this is the only Asian styled character within the scope of the game. Right. But they'd also, again, right-headed or wrong-headed, have a hard time launching into a setting based on the stereotypes of Asian culture that were used to create what they did in second edition. Absolutely. That just trying to attack that kind of an egg, crack that kind of a nut, is just, I don't think that's something that D&D is going to get into. I don't think they are. I know that there are Kickstarters and other games from other people in the world that are putting out content that is very culturally specific. And it tends to be, at least the stuff that I'm hearing about as being good, tends to be from people from that culture. There's a uh, German citizen who was on a podcast I was listening to. He is making a game, a tabletop game, 5e uh, compatible, that is based on African cultures, the uh, multiple African cultures. And there are many. Yep, I've seen that. It's, it, it looks And gorgeous. it looks fantastic. Yeah. Nobody else is going to be able to do that. I am an American, even though my family is from Africa. I'm not even going to be able to do that because I don't have my thumb on the pulse of that heritage as much as I should or could. 
but I'm actually looking forward to seeing more of that game and hearing more from that creator. I listened to him on a panel and thought he was a brilliant ambassador of those types of things. So at the end of the day, I think it is possible, but I think it's going to have to come from the gamers in that culture who are making that right, product. Right, it's not going to come from Wizards of the Coast. And that's the only way we have a shot at getting something that works, something that feels right, and that is not uh, offensive. And, and, and I don't think anybody else, myself, chief among them, is really qualified to talk on what that needs to look like. I can't do that. Right. No, not at all. Even beyond that, I think that in 2021, with the amount of options that we as role players have to play a game, to play one game or another game, when there is a game like Wushu, which is designed to be a Kurosawa-style martial arts-driven combat, why play a samurai in Dungeons & Dragons, which is a system which is going to actively fight against the actions that a samurai character wants to take. The system, the mechanics actively fight against doing those sorts of things. And there is a game system out there which is really approachable, really available, really affordable, really well-written, and does exactly the thing you want. Like, putting this class in, I mean, I, honestly, I think it was a mistake. I don't think that they should have included the subclass. They should have cut bait with it. I agree. Let it go. I, I think somewhere along the lines, they should have said, look, this one isn't going to work. What, what was plan B? But I get the fact that what they were trying to do. Look, Forgotten Realms has... On the back end of it, at least it did. Nobody's been dealing with it for three for three editions now. The Asian culture, the 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 steps. So it's there. It's in the world. It has not been cut off of current games. They're just not doing anything to support it right now. And with that in mind, I agree. It was probably something that should have been dropped. There's a reason why it has never been reprinted. It's probably, I think, a glaring example of one of the few things that absolutely doesn't work out of Xanathar's, which otherwise is an excellent and exquisite book. It's an excellent book, yeah. I did want to say one thing, though. I ranked it higher for wanting to play it because I think on some level, if I was playing a rabbit folk, I might be able to get an Usagi Yojimbo that came out somewhat close to that show uh, or that comic. <laughs> I think I could probably do, if it was a really small size campaign, get something very close to Lone Wolf and Cub. I think I could do something very small like that. If it was less focused on the combat and more focused on the RP, I could probably make a samurai work. Let us soldier on. <laughs> no pun intended. See, so did there. We're going to talk about uh, a book that we actually haven't talked about uh, on any of our subclass episodes yet. We're going to talk about our first subclass from the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, which I will be honest, when when uh, I think Glenn and I both said the same thing, when we looked at the uh, at the sheet, Liwanika very kindly put together the spreadsheet that we use to kind of do all the, uh, all the math and everything that we have here, and he put the abbreviation EGTW. <laughs> Glenn and I both looked at each other uh, and were like, what the f*** is GTW? What book is that? I'm looking through my book. I'm like, it's not it's not Theros. It's not, what what book is that? It's the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount. But we're going to talk about the only subclass for the fighter in that book, and that's the Echo Knight. All of us ranked the Echo Knight fairly high. With qualifications. Yeah, sure, yeah. We're going to get into those in just a second. But yeah, I I, I actually ranked this. This was tied, uh, at, as, uh, as as Lee Wanika uh, said earlier, uh, this was uh, how flawed my thinking was in this process. Uh, this was actually tied for first with the banneret. Those are the two subclasses that I thought were the best out of all 10 of these. Um, and so uh, we're going to get into quite possibly how flawed my thinking was here. But um, here's the deal. The Echo Knight... It is a mechanical monster. It is, there are virtually no limitations to any of the, the characteristics, the, the maneuvers, the abilities of this subclass. You know, I mean, even just look at, if you look at Manifest Echo, right? Which is basically Mirror Image, which is another, which is an Eldritch Knight ability, but it's Mirror Image and other stuff. For free. Just a bonus action. Yeah, for free. Exactly. It's a bonus action. Right. No limit. Make 40 of them in a day if people keep killing them. Yeah, there's a limit, though. 
You can just do it. It's fine. You know? Well, okay. Yeah. If you kill the, yeah, that's true. If you kill the Echo Knight, he can't do it anymore. That's true. But, you know, but that's what other limit are you seeing? I see the limit in the power of the Echoes, right? And I agree with you. There are no governors on this thing, but it is very similar to the problem I had with the Arcane Archer. My problem with the Arcane Archer is you're talking about a character whose name is Arcane Archer, but he cannot Arcane Archer often enough. Everything he does should allow him to Arcane Archer. The Echo Knight solved that problem, but it did it by making the Echo weak. These things get hit often. They get hit easily. Their AC is going to be less than the actual main character who's casting them generally. And because they only have one hit point, they're going away as fast as you can make them. So effectively, especially when you take into account weapon choices, you're still taking a bonus action to put something up. And it's not like it's always going to be there or you're the, the main kicker is never going to be hit. It's not doing damage itself. It's actually less effective than a for a forge cleric with the shield spell. And, and so I think the built-in limit is the power of the thing it's doing, even though it's doing the thing as often as you would like. I got to wholeheartedly disagree. Yeah. I mean, I got to jump right in on that. I mean, for the love of monkeys, man, the echo. All right. The physical manifestation of the echo is weak. That's a true story. Fine. You can whack it down with one hit. I don't care. Next round. Guess what I can do with this bonus action? Oop, it's right there beside you again. Didn't do you any good, did it? And how many enemies, unless they're familiar with it, are going to attack it? Because it doesn't pose a threat on its own. It just stands there. But what it does do, what it does do at third level is it gives you two zones of control up to 30 feet apart on the battlefield for attacks of opportunity. Almost any of the abilities that you have can cross that boundary, right? And I don't remember because I don't have the stats in front of me because I don't own Explorer's Guide to Wildmont, so I had to look this all, all of this up. If it comes in later or not, or if it starts at third level, but you get the ability to teleport, switch places with your Echo. So now you oh, have yeah. an unlimited 30-foot yeah. teleport. You, you, can switch, you can switch back and forth between your Echo, yeah. And your Echo moves. Yep. It does take a reaction to do that, if I recall correctly. So the... Okay. All right, fine. <laughs> with a bonus action and a reaction, I so, just became unlimitedly mobile. Yeah. Okay. With right. two so, zones of control on the battlefield. Right, but here's the limiting factor. You said it was unlimited. If you move it, you then cannot use it as a zone of control in that same round. So you are making a calculated tactical choice. Am I going to, should I keep it still so I can use an attack of opportunity as a reaction? Or And if I do, then I lose my own because you have to use yours. That's not a limit. That's just choosing which power you're going to use that round, Lee. It, it, there's no game limit. There's no stop to your ability to do it. If you stood in one spot and just kept popping them up, I could keep whacking your echoes all day long at six-second rounds if I killed them in one shot. I mean, how many of them could we kill in a day before you? nothing happens to you? There's no limit. But here's the deal. With the Battlemaster, I can do the same thing I, I, with the exception of the distance piece. So you are adding the distance piece, and that doesn't come on, online until At later. At third level? At third level, if I choose the right uh, maneuver, uh, I can add a D8 to my attack of opportunity. This isn't about choosing the right maneuver. This is their base ability. Right. And that... It's crazy overbalanced, Which man. maneuvers are for the battle? It's mess. crazy overbalanced. We're gonna we're gonna have to agree to disagree because you ain't seeing straight if you see that as possibly balanced. I I I would happily trot out my swashbuckler to fight next to an Echo Knight who can teleport who can teleport himself thirty feet away, impose disadvantage on the enemy that he's facing. Let my swashbuckler come up and and uh, and sneak attack for however much damage I'm going to be able to do and then have him blip back to his regular position and I'll just fight with his shadow. Like, yes, please. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday. So with a battle master, I can impose, uh, I can choose commander strike and give you advantage at, uh, at 30 feet also, as long as I choose that feature. Yes, but. And give you an extra D8. Right. But if I'm not with your echo knight, I worry about getting hit, which is the weakest part of a swashbuckler. If I'm a swashbuckler and I'm getting hit, bad things happen. If your Echo Knight is there, I don't have to worry about that. Right. Now, your swashbuckler has two different zones of constant sneak attack. They do it's, anyway, it's, though. 
it's hugely powerful. I mean, you can just blip over and take your action on the other side. I am not saying it's not powerful. It is powerful. It is among the most powerful. What I am saying is it is not broken. I don't think it outweighs other things that can be done at similar levels. If you find me another class that feels as strong as that does to me, I'm going to say it's broken and needs to be fixed too. <laughs> yeah, I think it's stronger than the Battlemaster. I absolutely do. And maybe and maybe it's maybe it's because the maneuvers pose so much diversity. It's like you said, the maneuvers pose so much diversity, you really have to think about what it is that you're taking and what it affords you. Right. And so a yeah. given build of a Battlemaster is as strong as an Echo Knight. Yes. But it takes knowing and manipulating, not manipulating the rules, but knowing the rules and it's hard. ushering your path through the rules to get there versus the Echo Knight, which is just basically like, yep, here you go. But I love it. Love it, flavor-wise. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I call it the time night, the the time night, because of these echoes of time. I think it's, I think flavor-wise, it's amazing. And if one of you guys want to let me play it, I would love. Oh, I'm, I'm on, I'm on record. I want to play this. But as a DM, I think they're broken. I think this is too powerful. I think the issue is you do have to uh, worry about something with a battle master that you don't have to worry about with this. With a battle master, you have to pick the weapon and the fighting style to match the types of maneuvers, or pick the move- maneuvers that match the weapon and fighting style you use. With the Echo Knight, that is less of a consideration and much more forgiving. In that regard, it has additional power than the battle master, and I will grant you. But I do know using reach weapons w- with a uh, battle master and maneuvers. I think it's pretty close. Let's let's move out of that accursed book that nobody has and go into the uh, the two fighter subclasses. That's not fair. I'm sure that there are people that own the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, uh, even though we had no idea what the heck the abbreviation. Can, can I can I just say one thing to all of our fans that watch Critical Role? What Josh just said is not the group opinion. <laughs> no, it's not. No, no, it is not. <laughs> I will say this, and it's what I put in my notes. I actually want to read from my notes, which I try not to do, but I'm going to do this. While I've yet to make a deep dive into the mysteries of of the Dunamis or the Dunamancy, as a whole, I'm intrigued by the subclass. subclass. Mm-hmm. And the world. While the, it is a powerful subclass, it is not truly game-breaking. Like the Battlemaster, there are a lot of positioning and resource management options. This may not be the best class for novice player. And I say this from the bottom of my heart, très cool, mon ami, mercer. Let's move on to the two fighter subclasses uh, that were featured in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Um, and I, I like this. Uh, I, I like how this podcast has gone tonight because I've sort of led the conversation for each one, so I can say whatever wild conspiracy theory I'm feeling at the time, uh, and I'm automatically going to sound right. So we're going to start with the Psy Warrior. Anybody that has listened to me talk about Tasha's, anybody that has listened to me talk about any of the other subclasses, know I have mad love for psionics. I love psionics. I was really disappointed in this subclass. I felt that it was stronger than the Eldritch Knight early, but that that really teetered off as the subclass progressed. I thought that similar to the Samurai and some other subclasses, which had mechanical flaws, it was based in a attribute which is not what a fighter's primary attribute is going to be, or even a secondary attribute. Like, it's got kind of the same problem that the Arcane Archer and the Eldritch Knight have. Playing a fighter where intelligence or wisdom needs to be really high poses problems if you're playing a fighter. And I also thought that the way that the powers for this particular subclass utilized the psionic dice were really underutilized because really they weren't psionic dice, right? They were really just counters that allowed you to trigger psionic abilities. There was only one of the psionic abilities that actually made you roll that psionic dice to to add. And I think it was, it was the, I don't even remember which one it was off the top of my head, but all the other ones basically said, if you have a psionic die, you can use this. 
And so it's basically just a counter at that point. I feel like that was an interesting choice compared to to other psionic subclasses. I mean, the 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 soul knife that we saw. I mean, it it used its uh, uh its psionic powers really really effectively. Something that we've seen in Tasha's was that the subclasses that were in Tasha's were mechanically superior to other subclasses. That was just that's just a fact. Um, they were certainly mechanically more powerful than other subclasses, and the the subclasses in general were better written than they were in. Or like we talked about the player's handbook about how basically the player's handbook subclasses need to be rewritten to kind of bring them up to the standard that we saw in Tasha's. The Psy Warrior, I think, fell flat on all of those things that we had seen in Tasha's, and was a big disappointment. I hear what you're saying, and while it fell a bit less for me in many of those areas that you said it fell flat, I don't think it quite reduced itself to the level of being flat. It came down very strongly for me as something I want to play. It came down as uh, something that I thought had interesting mechanics. I guess I am intrigued to play it because I'm not sure... I think there's something about it mechanically, and I see what you're saying, but I think it will play better than it reads, or I'm completely wrong, and it will play worse than it reads. Yeah. So I will freely admit, I don't think where I place it is where it will end up being. It's either going to be a little bit higher or a lot worse. Like, I don't think it can be a little bit worse than I said. It's either going to drop to the level that you said or it's going to be just a little bit higher and really start to push out some of the other things that I was really uh, anxious to work on. It's something that I think I have to play through. I'll be honest with you, before I played a Battlemaster, I kind of was in that same place with the Battlemaster. Like, wow, a little complex, a lot to kind of keep track of. How cool will it actually be? Once I started playing one and I started realizing what I could do on the battlefield, what I could do to support my, uh, my fellow party members, what I could do to augment myself, I really started liking it. And you're right. The challenge is the divided loyalties that you have when you're trying to assign your, your points. Tasha's fixes that in and of itself to some extent. And I didn't say that in the other one because I thought the other one was way too difficult. But I would say if you're playing the right lineage or you choose the right lineage options, assigning your dice, you can make this playable. I don't think you have to go as strong on the constitution end as you do for the other build. I think with this one, you can be middle of the road with constitution, maybe not even have a big bonus there as long as your intelligence is up a bit higher here. I think it handles that problem a little bit better. So see, for me, the the Psy Warrior, I was all excited. I was like, the last time we talked about a psionics character, I was all down on psionics and D&D. <laughs> and uh, like, I totally ranted about it for a hot minute. So, and I promised y'all I would give it a second chance. So I tried really hard to read it with an open mind and find good things about it. And then betrayal, the psionics guy's like, I hate it. <laughs> Here I am trying to, you know, butter Only up one to him. him. Only one so, of them, yes. Sorry for doing you dirty. No worries, bro. Um, I do sit more in Lee's camp on this one with uh, the fact that it, it's it got enough there. I could play it and I could have fun with it. Um, when I was looking at this one, I really just kind of started comparing it to a Cyber Knight from Rifts to try to help myself get behind it a little bit, you know, for the kind of psionic combat person. Totally different in the end, but it kind of helped me out. But I think it could be a lot of fun to play. I do, again, agree. Same thing we made a comment on about the Arcane Archer. When you start bringing Intellect N for a warrior, you're giving him too many stats to have to worry about, and that is tough. But when you're talking about Psionics, what other stat could you really base it on? Maybe Wisdom? That comes from the brain, too. But it's still not exactly... Charisma? But None yeah. of those are strong fighter stats. It's still, you know, he's the guy who needs those physicals. Exactly. You're dealing with the three stats that a fighter is not going right. to have. A fighter is going to have strength, dexterity, and constitution, constitution, probably in that order. Yeah. When you want to mix in the magic for a fighter, you're going to have to give something up somewhere. So again, I don't think he'll ever be Buffy, but he might be a solid Xander on the side. Or I could come up with a better analogy than that because Xander doesn't really fight much. But whatever. I love Buffy. Get over it. He could be a lot of fun. And the dice don't get as crazy. You're right. But I like the way that they set it up in this one. And I think it speaks directly to the fighter and what the dice should be for. I think unless it's impacting damage, if you're going to look at dice that big, that's my big beef with the Battlemaster is putting a D12 on a skill roll or an attack roll on top of all of his other bonuses. 
right? <laughs> That's a big die for, for a skill check or uh, a, a hit check, but they're just applying it to damage. And yeah, you've got all of the other abilities that flavor give you the, the psionic ability, the, the psionic characteristics and the flavor that you're looking for. But the two main abilities that you're using as a fighter are protective field and psionic strike. And those are the ones you roll your damage for. And that's all about adding damage to a strike or putting up a field and you can also defend even an ally and reduce damage. Aside from that, I think that if the die is going to be that big, it should be a counter as opposed to something that gets rolled. Because unless it's about damage, it shouldn't be that big a die. If we're going to make the dice be about other types of skills besides damage, it needs to stay at the D4, D6, not go up. Yeah, see, I disagree because I think the level of challenges uh, scale so highly when you get into Tier 3 and Tier 4 that having a D4 added to anything that you're doing is, is, is not useful. It just doesn't do enough. And honestly, D8 sounds big, but the average roll is 4. So... If you're rolling it to hit and you're trying to hit things that have ACs around 20 or 25 and you're adding four, is it really that much more significant than two? Well, let's look at it when it gets to 12, where by that point, right. your proficiency bonus gives you already plus what to hit? Six. If, it, if right. you're on a proficiency bonus of six, you're rolling a D12. Yeah. So you're basically saying on a limited resource, so a limited amount of times in a Given short rest, uh, you get to double that. So you get to roll a 12 a couple times. And that's that's on the average. Keeping in mind that fighter damage doesn't scale as much as their two hits and ability that's to hit scale. Yeah. So you got to understand if like uh, the battle master I play, he's still rolling with his best weapon. I'm only rolling a D10 or a D12, even if I'm rolling a D12. So even if I get that one extra hit, it's still going to be magic weapon. I add a plus three. I get to add my strength. With all my bonuses, I'm going to get about 20, and I get to hit that well four times in a, in a section of time. Is four of my 20s anywhere near the scale of a fireball upcast at the same level? Not even close. Right. That's where I say it's not as game-breaking as you think because the damage doesn't scale. You have to scale your to hit or in the case of the battle master and similarly here, if you scale your damage, your to hit remains the same. It's that choice. And I think that's why it's not broken. To be clear, I don't think that it's broken. I think that they overcomplicated it. The only right. thing that I thought is broken is I think the Echo Knight goes too far. The superiority die for the battle master isn't the only rolled die that we're talking about either. Um, there are other abilities and other subclasses that offer die rolls and most of them don't go up to a d12 either my, my issue with it is not that i think it breaks the game it's that they overcomplicated the battle master and that attack rolls and damage dice are different enough math formulas that adding the same die roll without making any connotation or difference i don't think it makes sense i think it's apples and oranges now, do I see an easy fix for that beyond some rewrite on the way the ability works? No, I'm, I, I'm sure there are things that can be done. I'm not trying to say that it needs to be rewritten, though. I just think they overcomplicated in that one instance and in that those two numbers aren't the same number. They're not the same type of number. Let's carry on and go to our our last subclass, you know, after a 15 minute discussion on the Psy Warrior. <laughs> our bad. Let's no. Hey, that's fine. That that's why we did this as a second episode, right? Yeah. So we can go ahead and have some. So we give ourselves some space to go ahead and ha hammer this out. Yeah. Let's definitely. talk about the Rune Knight and and the Rune Knight. I was less disappointed by the Rune Knight, although I also felt like it was not it was not up to the other subclasses that we saw in Tasha's for other for other classes outside of Fighter. I thought that the Rune Knight was flavorfully and and uh, and and from an interesting character point of view, wonderful. In terms of my desire to play this character, this was the one that I ranked a 10 out of 10, that I want to play it. I thought that it's, it just seems really interesting to play. That said, I think that its mechanics are, are pretty weak sauce at the end of the day. And I think that it's it you can look at its mechanics in, in two ways that kind of illustrate what the issue is here. The first one is that 
kind of like the Psy Warrior, early, it's great. Tier 1 into Tier 2, the Rune Knight's going to be awesome. After Tier 2, it doesn't really have much. Mm. It doesn't get much after that. Think about, at 10th level, the Rune Knight gets to get a little taller and do an additional D8 worth of damage. That's its, that's its power. Its power is it gets to turn into Glenn. And who wants that? I mean, that's, you know... There's enough of me already. <laughs> I, th- I think we've previously mentioned on the podcast that Glenn is exceptionally tall. So. I'm not that tall. I just look that way to you two short Samuel L. Jacksons. Yeah. I, I think Lee Wanika and I are five foot four between the two of us, and Glenn's about six foot twelve. So it's, yeah. I, I don't get the five foot four. I'm five two and, <laughs> and some amount of halfling change. Yeah. So 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 that so that's the first thing is that good early, but the powers kind of drop off after a while. The second thing is that if you look at the uh, the progression for giant strength, which is which is the ability, it's kind of the hallmark ability of the Rune Knight. The progression for giant strength does not scale in the same way that other powers that scale in that way, it, it has a different scale. So for example, instead of having a D12 to add to your to giant strength, you only have a D10 at level 18. And so you're one dice category behind in any of your scaling. And I just, it's those kind of things that make me look at it and go, "Uh, okay, well, why are you, why are you limiting the thing that I want to use? Like, why, why are you actually doing that? What sense does it make? And I don't think that the difference between a D10 and a D12 is going to be that game breaking that it is worth taking an 18th level ability and just making it a little bit worse than it needs to be. And those are the two things. So it really brought down its mechanics. That said, I think the Rune Knights are freaking awesome. I would love to go ahead and play one. I think it could be a lot of fun, too. No, I was going to say, there's a build somewhere in the universe that is screaming for me to play a Rune Knight. I don't know exactly what it is, and it's why I ranked that, you know, 7 out of 10. It was kind of like, I'm feeling it, but there's something about it that's holding me back or something that's just not making it special. I'm not really sure. But I agree with uh, what you said, Josh. The, the mechanics were pretty weak sauce. Uh, as I said, I kind of just went through and just positioned to it like it more or less than other mechanics and it ended up a four out of t- uh, uh, out of out of ten. You know, it was like it really wasn't all that, you know, and its flavor while it was there. And I think it was kind of cool. Ended up halfway. It was five. I gave it a ten for a wild card because there's something about it that makes me want to like it more. Yeah. And I have no idea what that is. And I think that's why we build in the wild card. You know, I don't know what what it's missing. And I think maybe the answer is I need to play it to find out. And maybe that is something we should all take away from these rankings, our rankings, anybody's rankings is if you see something and you're not sure, play it, play it, play it well, play it to the best of your ability, work it for as many games and sessions as you possibly can, as long as you're having fun. And at the end of that, you'll know what it's missing. And that may give you an idea of what to homebrew, how to homebrew or why you never picking it up again. So I'm going to hashtag spoiler alert just a second before, before Glenn, you dive in. Um, uh, my idea about the barbarian class is that barbarian should not be a class, it should be a lineage, and that there should be a whole series of of classes that are specific to the to the 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 Norse Viking barbarian lineage, right? Mm-hmm. This is one of them. This is the Rune Knight is not a fighter class. It should be closer to the barbarian. Um, and I think that is the mechanical shift that I am feeling with this. This does not feel like a fighter to me. This feels like a like a when you look at about its 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 its, uh, its giant lineage, all those sorts of things, it seems to me like something that would be better suited to a barbarian lineage um, as opposed to kind of a fighter. And Goliaths, yes, right. I love Goliaths, by the way. Yeah. I have since they yep. first came out in third edition. Yeah, and I absolutely love them in yeah. fifth edition. That said, I'm having a real hard time picturing a half elf rune knight. <laughs> what's funny is you're correct line. that's actually the character when I said there's a build somewhere it was going to be a halfling or a gnome now a lizard man rune knight oh yeah absolutely I'm I'm Ooh, all for that a turtle like, rune knight yeah a, a, a yanti rune knight like there are a bunch of classes that would do really really well with rune knight 
and a bunch of classes that are for, like I can't even picture like an elven rune knight. I can't picture even a dwarven rune knight on some level would be really weird. Like it just dwarves it, who like mountain giants. I could work. see it kind of working out, but he'd be the yeah, odd duck in the clan. It'd be odd. Yeah, yeah. and I think you that know, that's really why I'm it so low mechanically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, G- give it magic initiate and uh, and and mage hand. <laughs> <laughs> so the rune knight. Okay, um, I think it's fun too, and it's got a lot of the that cool gianty flavor. And I agree with you that it definitely speaks to coming from, especially with that giant heritage, from coming from a more primitive side of the fighter, like the barbarian. So I actually think that's kind of a neat idea, but. That core feature of their ruin, their runes, stops adding flavor at level seven. There are no higher level runes, runes, and there's a pathetic few level seven runes. Honestly, for this class to truly have its flavor take off, I think they needed to give it a little bit more attention. But as I've been listening to us talk about this and other ones prior to it, something has occurred to me because I keep hearing the same thing. It's gonna. It looks like it's gonna run pretty strong through first tier, second tier, and then it's gonna peter out. And it occurs to me, Wizards of the Coast realizes the same thing that Lee says. Most campaigns don't make it past second tier. So they're focusing on where their main player source is. And they're not, I, I think, based on what we're seeing, that they are not putting as much effort into balancing out and making sure that the later abilities in these classes truly are balanced out and cool and effective. is because they don't think that that many players are going to get there. So it's not their priority. Aside from a one-shot, I think there's a calculation that says, write whatever you want, I don't give a crap. It's level 15, it's level 17, it's level 18. 15, they'll pay attention to 17. Eh, if it's good, it's good. That's why some that are just good feel great. Because if you compare them with other level 17 abilities, they are. But in and of themselves, they're not great. They're just good. And if you look at 18, there are probably in fighters, maybe one or two that are good, that are great, if that, if that, and, and if you look at all subclasses in the game, not just this, not just the fighter class, I bet you, you don't get 10 great capstone abilities and subclasses, but I'm still going to keep beating the drum of consistency because that's what I've decided is what it boils down to complexity and consistency. My beef with the superiority dice wouldn't be the same if every time they rolled out a dice feature, it followed the same system but every one of them is different every stinking one yep yep and i would agree with you i think we talked in the previous episode that using the exact same term or similar term created a problem because it confused people in this case we have the exact same thing you're getting a goofy dice you're getting a superiority dice you're getting a you're a cool magic hat dice, whatever that is, and it's a different mechanic each time, it helps make it more complex because it's not the same. If any feature that was a dice feature followed the same mechanical process, I get X dice, it is X big at X at Y level, and I get to use it this amount of times per the appropriate rest for my class. If that was how they did each of these dice features, it would be much easier for all these things. The complexity of Battlemaster to other things would definitely not be there. It might still be complex because they're talking about bonus action choices versus other types of choices, but it would be easier to manage in a headspace simply because it's the same as the cleric I played the last campaign, and it will be the same as the rogue I'm about to play in the campaign that follows that. Now that you have restated my point for me perfectly, I will grant that you have finally come around to the right way of thinking. <laughs> I'll accept that. <laughs> you don't You don't give me that credit every day. I'm just playing. <laughs> I know, man. You give me that credit every day. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that bugs me about the Rune Knight is the actual name. There's nothing about this subclass that says knight to me. We mm. just spent a large amount of time in this episode of the Runic previous Warrior episode would be talking better. about Runic Warrior. Yeah, so, talking about uh, you know sounds I, I mean, cooler too. Yeah, it does. I mean, bust out thesaurus.com and pick a different word. 
Right. Especially when you had three other classes that really should be knights. Yeah. Yeah. Heck, samurai is a type of knight. But we've got the uh, the baronet and the cavalier, but they're not knights. Yeah. But that's exactly what they're Even supposed the champion. to be. Even the champion's really a knight. I mean, that's, you know. Yeah. Nah, the champion could be He-Man or, you know, any other big muscle-bound oh, village yeah, okay. tough. That, that's fair. That's fair. All right. Let's go ahead and close out this episode. Let's go over how our rankings fell out. Uh, I'll start at the bottom here. I'll do the subclasses in reverse order. Uh, number 10 for us was the Samurai with a 3.75 out of 10. Uh, next one was the Cavalier with a little bit over 4. Uh, the Champion came in at 8th uh, with, again, about a 4.5. A uh, little bit over five, uh, thanks to my spectacular plus nine rating. Uh, the, the banneret came in uh, in seventh. Uh, a little bit over six out of ten came the arcane archer. Uh, tied for fourth and fifth are the Psy warrior and the rune warrior, uh, the rune knight. See, I, I mean, I'm already calling it the runic warrior. See, that's you know, I find that funny that the two Tasha's subclasses were. Contrary to other others other classes where we've looked at this, where Tasha's has been right at the very top, the subclasses for fighter from Tasha's very much middle of the road. Fighter didn't need as much as some of the other classes, I think, as part of the reason. I think they worked harder to improve some of the classes that already had weaker yeah. stuff, and fighters got like a little after attention with what was left over. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, that's fair. Um, number three with a seven point three uh, is the Eldritch Knight. Uh, number two with a almost a 7.8 is the Battlemaster. And then the first place ranked subclass uh, was the Echo Knight. And I think that we can all say that it's the strength of character of the Echo Knight uh, that really kind of uh, kind of guided it. It's an amazing concept, man. I love I love all of the concepts behind it. Yeah. Uh, and 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 uh, super strong, although, you know. Uh, Lee Wanika, I know you you were you were advocating hard for uh, the Equi Knight and the Battlemaster uh, being being closer in powers than I think that uh, Glenn and I were were giving it credit for, um, and uh, they became uh, number one and number two with about a half a point separating them. So I think that uh, your argument probably holds more water than we were giving you credit for. So they're the three highest I had ranked for what I'd like to play next. So yeah, I. I, and I think despite a lot of difference between the three of us on various individual classes, I think the three that came out on top were the three that we pretty much all were in our top four. Yeah. If I were, if I recall the way that looked. And I think that's kind of telling. That means they were all there. So we each had at least one thing that ranked out of sync with the other. But in general, we were kind of in sync on most other things, even if they're for different reasons, like what we might like one thing less, one thing more. Uh, and I think that's very indicative of the strength of the fighter class. Look, this is a class that gives you extra times to hit. It gives you extra abilities as far as second rest, extra attack, all those, uh, all those types of things. And guess what? You get fighting styles and a stupid amount of feats. Every one of these can benefit from the right feat to augment it, to get it where it needs to be. That's one thing that we really did not talk about was feats. And we're probably going to have to do a whole separate episode about feats because of the amount of diverse, although it would be a hundred episodes with the way that we talk about them. But the point is that that that's the one thing that we really didn't discuss here is how much feats will change your fighter build. The, the like, fighters it, are it, very it, feet the, massive, the effect is massive. Yeah. yeah. They're, the effect are massive. And, so. and they can all be different for the different subclasses too. So, I mean, there's no way we could actually go through all of that. Well, I guess we could have, but it would have taken multiple, multiple episodes. I will save a lot of this part of the discussion for a future discussion on feats, but I will say this. With the exception of the our top three, if you chose the right feats, you could take any one of these subclasses and build at least one other of these subclasses and be just as effective. And I think that's the strength of the fighter class as a whole. And part of the reason why some of the other things ranked lower, because if you can replicate the features with a pair or selection of feats that a fighter is going to get, you can literally pick which one you want to play. And then your number two Build it with your feats. I can build an arcane archer by choosing a battle master and the right feats. And be just as effective, call myself an arcane archer from the RP standpoint, and be just as effective 
without having those specific features. The specific the specific arrows won't be the same, but I'm going to be doing battlefield control with my maneuvers and adding spells because I have a couple spell features that add other things. Or even play a Battlemaster and add the Eldritch Adept and take all the, the Eldritch powers. Now you've got your Battlemaster plus an Eldritch Knight. Like, it's absolutely... Yep. Like the, the feats really will change your, your build so much. Sorry, go on. No worries. I was just going to jump in on the Battlemaster because it keeps coming back up. And at the risk of starting uh, Fighter War 3 again, point out that if a specific subclass with the right tweaks and changes is powerful enough to take the place of most of the other subclasses as though and make them obsolete either it's designed super super well or it's too powerful because it's taking away it's you're saying that that one class has the ability that one subclass has the ability to take away the uniqueness of every other subclass we've discussed just about and that's what I think is the weakness in the other subclasses. I don't think it's a weakness in the Battlemaster. Okay. I so think you don't think the Battlemaster is broken. You think that all of the other subclasses are just crap. Well, I did I did give it the very well-designed idea, but if they can't come up with something that complex for every other subclass, though? But they chose not to. Like I said, choosing to do things like the Echo Knight makes it on par and can't be matched, plus its flavor. Choosing to do something like that with the Arcane Archer, it's an Arcane Archer. Let it Arcane Archer every single shot. Oh, no, definitely improve it. Right? So if you did that, then the Battlemaster can't match it. It can match what it does now, but if you fixed it, it couldn't. Okay. That's I kind of get point. what you, Okay, I get what you're saying, and I see that, I see that perspective. I still uh, would throw out there that it might just be a little bit tweaked, but that's okay. I think, friends, what we are finding is that there is... Uh, probably more discussion space on this particular topic. Look, we've got our we have got our production schedule for the next through a month and a half anyway, pretty well nailed down because there's a bunch of stuff coming out in these next couple of months here. Maybe we'll see more discussion about some of these fighter uh, some of these fighter subclasses when we uh, when we start getting ready to put out that uh, how to fix your fighter uh, uh, that how to fix your fighter publication. So and a great way to join into that part of the production is by joining the conversation starting once you hear this podcast, right? So join in the conversation. Tell us what you think. Tell us you know, what you like, what you agree. Tell us some of the things you would like to do with some of these. Tell us where you think the problems are or tell us why you think we're just absolutely wrong. We tell each other that all the time. That's essentially <laughs> why this is a two-part episode because we spent at least a half hour to 45 minutes telling each other we were wrong. Feel free to do that but just do it in the comments. If you hit us up on uh, Facebook, I am and say, Hey, this is what I think. I say, save it for the comments. Don't forget in the comments, just encourage Josh and lead. Always agree with Glenn. We'll get through things much smoother. Your episodes will run more efficiently. It'll be great. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening, everybody. We hope that you guys enjoyed this two-parter on the fighter subclass as much as we enjoyed putting it out. Cause honestly, this conversation was, uh, was fabulous. Uh, it was a good time. So we'll look forward to the next one. So please be watching the groups very closely uh, because the next poll for the next class uh, will be hitting shortly after this episode comes out. So we hope that, uh, that you all vote and uh, we'll talk to you then. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our SideQuest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop-oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.